1: Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast on the Be Here Now network. And my guest today is Laura mcawen Laura, thank you so much for being with me.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I appreciate it. Um, so I wanted to read your bio for anyone that is not familiar with your work and this incredible new book that you have out that we are going to be discussing uh, throughout the next roughly hour, give or take. Uh, Lauren McCowan is the author of We Are the Luckiest. She is a former public relations executive who has become recognized as a fresh voice in the recovery movement. Beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing, she leads sold out yoga-based retreats and other courses that teach people how to say yes to a bigger life. She lives in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and you can learn more about her at com. That's spelled L-A-U-R-A-M-C-K-O-W-E-N.com. Or if you're checking this out on the Be Here Now uh, Network website, simply scroll down. We will have that linked. We'll have the link to her wonderful book. We are the luckiest there as well. Um, so Laura, thank you so much again for joining me today.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. And we are practically neighbors. I live in Connecticut, just South of you. So I know
2: uh, I saw that. Yes. yeah, waving to you today in this yes in seasonably warm day.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, eerily uh, warm lately. It was. I don't know for you, but I think last weekend we were in the sixties here. Oh, Canada. it reached seventy here. Oh my yeah. goodness. Um, I know. So yeah, that's a whole other show. Global. Warming. Yeah, that's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what I I like to do with some guests is, um, well, actually most guests, especially first time um, guests to the show, is. Kind of have them just give a bit of a background. So, I mean, it's some people keep their anonymity about being in recovery and fellowships, and obviously that's obviously I do not (laughs) no, and and nor do I. Um, so perfect fit. Um, so you know we're going to be talking a lot about that because that's what this book is about. And I would love for you, um, if if you don't mind, just kind of uh, going back. And I really enjoy starting the show with hearing a bit about the guest lives. Um, and you can start wherever, whether it's childhood or teenage, wherever you feel like, um, uh, you know, sharing from. And and the reason I mentioned the recovery thing is it's almost like a, a very nutshell uh, speaker meeting. Uh, yeah. The, for anyone familiar with 12 steps, but, you know, just, but I do that with people that are not in recovery. I'm just fascinated by the the human stories and conditions and experiences. So uh, if you don't mind kind of giving us a little background, uh, I would love to jump off from there.
2: Sure. So I uh, grew up in, I was born and raised in Colorado in a, like a small town south of Denver. Mm. I lived there uh, all through my life. I was, um, a, you know, pretty normal, middle class family. My parents got divorced when I was young. I have one brother and I went to college in Colorado. And then right afterwards, I moved here. I drove across country and moved to Boston with a a really good friend for no other reason than just to have an adventure. And she stayed for a couple of years and went back as most people do go, go back to Colorado or go towards Colorado. And I just fell in love with it here and, and stayed I uh, went to grad school here. Got married here. Had a kid here. Got divorced here. <laughs> got sober here. Uh, yeah. So my, you know, the the book that I wrote is about drinking, and I guess so. I'll, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about that you sure. know, just story. Uh, I grew up in a family where drinking was very normal, uh, normalized, and I just thought everybody, all adults, drank. I thought that was just the natural progression of how things go when you got to be of age or even before you were going to drink alcohol. And that's what adults did. And that's how they socialized. And it was part of every single event, no matter what it was. Um, I We had a restaurant. So that played into that quite a bit, you know, the that environment. And um, I grew up, you know, I mentioned that my parents divorced when I was young, which is by no means a unique thing but it definitely uh is the pull it for me it was when i started to sort of learn to shape shift who i was you know to make to make people happy or make people feel okay about what was going on so um i learned that if i wanted my parents to be okay i needed to act like everything was fine and that i was happy and that i was not upset um and I'm being very vague when right. I say that. But sure. the general sense is that I, I learned that pretty early. And I think I just had a, you know, very sensitive person or just, um, you know, I pick up on a lot and never really learned, like most of us, never really learned many tools to deal with that. Um, right. I just learned that being strong meant you just kept going and you yeah. put a smile on your face. and yeah. um, and I started to reach for things pretty early on to to ease the discomfort that I had inside. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it that way at the time, of course, but I can see it now, you know, whether it was food, um, at the end, towards the end of high school, I got a pretty bad eating disorder, and then I started drinking, and alcohol was really. Like I had this moment where I, at the end of high school, uh, I was about to go off to college and I was pretty wound up at the time, meaning just like a lot of, a lot of feelings going on, a lot of fear. I had a lot of stuff going on in my family and I remember drinking at this party and just feeling like everything was okay when, once I had a few drinks and that, just a few hours ago, it had not been okay. and most of the time, as I went through my days at that at that time, I was not okay. I didn't feel okay. but when I had a few drinks to me, I was fine, and I thought if I could just stay like this, everything will be okay. And I really chased that. like I really tried to keep that going and did so somewhat successfully for you know i I had some bad nights, and I definitely had. Um, I definitely had some bad nights and I had some consequences, but for the most part, my drinking looked pretty normal. I surrounded myself with people who also drank a lot. I, you know, moved, I started a career, all my friends drank, I went to grad school. I, I was always around people who drank the same way I did. And so I didn't, while I did have this growing sort of nagging sense that, may, that I drank a little bit differently and that I like liked it a little more than other people did, right. I had a lot of anxiety around it. I, didn't, I still didn't think, you know, like this is a problem per se. It was just something I had to be sort of vigilant about. Like I, I had to sort of watch it. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, it really upticked when I had my, it upticked when I got married and then it, it upticked big time when I had my daughter. Uh, and I hear that a lot from women, you know, from mothers, because our bodies change and our hormones change and we're not sleeping and we have this massive responsibility. And uh, I just remember feeling like, oh, it's not working anymore. Right. <laughs> like the alcohol isn't working anymore. And so I just drank more because I wanted it to work. You right. know, I wanted to get that same like relief, but it, really um only made me incredibly anxious yeah. and then i separated from my sep- husband and i separated when my daughter was three and that's when my drinking got really really bad and um i had a i start the book out with this moment that was you know if if i have a bottom moment at The bottom, the rock bottom sort of myth is, is, is somewhat of a myth because it wasn't the end of my drinking, but it was certainly the point where I had to, I was forced to face that this was not just something I could, that I was not going to be able to wrangle this (laughs) and control it. So I left my daughter uh, unattended for a night when she was very young and, um, it was, my family was there. So it was a it wasn't just something I could sweep under the rug that was known by other people. And uh, that's when I shortly after is when I went to my first 12 step meeting and I didn't get sober though, until about a year, a year and several months later. So that year was really like this brutal sort of purgatory for me. Mm. And I really didn't want, I really didn't want to get sober. I really didn't. Despite all the evidence I had that drinking was ruining my life, I just didn't, I couldn't believe that that was my only option, you know? Right. Um, So a lot of my book actually focuses on that, sort of this disbelieving state, this bargaining state, grief state that we enter when we are forced with something that is so painful that we can't quite accept it.
3: Right. Um,
1: yeah. I I just wanted to interject that, uh, I mean, I could relate to so much of that. Um, What you just said, the grief state, uh, was something that I didn't recognize at first in my own experience with um, laying aside alcohol or stopping drinking, which for me, um, I didn't get it my first try or second try or third or fourth. Um, I was one of those... um, you know, I, I don't like to, you know, quantify and use these labels, but for lack of a better word, I was a chronic relapser. And mm-hmm. and that's after like I would have a year or two or three or five years at one point and still mm-hmm. end up going back. And um, part of what I, I mean, I've since been and still am in therapy um, and trauma-based therapy and which has been very helpful. But the grief point you made is so huge because what I wasn't recognizing for part of it was that it? Truly is like losing a friend uh, oh when God. you stop drinking. You know, yeah, not just that, but someone who you know they're they're not judging you, they're not talking back, they're not.
2: It's always there,
1: always there, right? And yeah. and it was just wow. So I never took the time to truly like grieve that loss. Um, so, right, so and much. it's
2: also so. It's like it doesn't make sense because it's so destructive. It's, like yes you know it's like a relationship that's so bad and everyone's like thank god you're out of it but the person that's in it like there's a massive grief process yes that and, you go through yeah
1: and there's yeah there's plenty of uh clichés in the 12 steps that um you know I don't say that in a negative way cuz you know they make sense cunning baffling uh, insidious like it, mm-hmm. these things that unless you've gone through it if you're on the outside looking in you know you it's very hard to understand that. And yet if you have gone through it and like we're talking about it, we know exactly what, you know, one another is, um, talking about. So, um, but yeah, the, the grief thing, I, I mean, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, I did, I, I, I kind of chuckled to myself that, and, and I think you playfully spoke about how you stayed in Boston because I travel and speak at a lot of conferences and festivals as well. And anytime mm-hmm. I'm out in Colorado or Phoenix or areas like that, I meet so many people from the East coast. Right. And it's that like, are like, what? Right. Yeah, like I moved out here kind of the polar opposite, like, you know, it was just a vacation, whatever. And I'm like, I fell in love and I could never go back. And <laughs> you're probably one of the first people I at least currently remember like hearing the, the complete opposite of that, so uh, yeah, no,
2: it is. It's the reverse route, but I don't know. There's to me the Northeast is
1: magical. Oh, I agree. I like. I love the Four Seasons. I love snow. I know that's not a popular. Love that it's sentiment. old
2: yeah. and yeah so much history and
1: yes, yeah, it's beautiful here. Um, so I, I mean, boy, there was so much in what you just shared. I was was gonna unpack, and uh as I I mentioned in the podcast I did with Brad yesterday, we were both like just getting over colds or i have like the sinus thing so it's like a hot mess but um anyways uh so i i noticed that i have these thoughts and then they kind of go and (laughs) but oh you know one thing i was going to say was um so about the recovery thing so you know you, you were talking about um you know you're drinking and recognizing that it's not working so you're doing it more and of course you know again Mm -hmm. anyone who's been in those shoes understands tolerance builds and you know it's just one is too many thousands never enough another one of the 12-step cliches that are very true um and so something i um in your own story i know and we're just going to kind of jump around throughout the book because there's you know i it's wonderful and i i it's meant to be read, I think, cover to cover. But for conversational purposes, so many topics, we can just address it. I don't oh, think yeah. we need to follow yeah. the format. But so um, one of the points um, you're talking about defining oneself uh, or I should say not defining oneself as an addict, alcoholic. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was reading that, I couldn't have agreed more. And for me, at least the reason why is that I got to a point where, and there, you know, I'm all for whatever works for you, go for it. Like I, you know, I I would never tell anyone what to do or not to do, but I'm at a point where like, I don't count time anymore. I don't consider myself this or that. Like, I know I live with a part of myself that uh, has alcoholism and I can't drink because of that. Um, But even like with clean time, I stopped a long time ago, counting because I recognize I might not be drinking, but I will catch myself acting out in other ways that are the same obsessive compulsive way that I would drink, exactly the same. It's just you know the symptoms of my illness are manifesting in a different way um so you know something I'm very cognizant of, and so right. am I really sober? I mean on one hand, yes, I'm not drinking, but um, like I could be going on an eating binge. You mentioned an eating disorder. I've struggled with those when I was younger too. Yep. Not so much now, but sure. Like there are days where I will do something like that or numb out with TV and know that it's the same behavior, just a different substance. So anyways, all that to say, I would love to hear because this isn't a popular sentiment among a lot of people Um, that... Are no. in recovery, but I'm right there with you on it. And I was so glad to read it. And I would love to hear you uh, elaborate more on that.
2: Sure. So, okay. So, <clears throat> when uh, labels can be very useful, like yes. we need to know what things are, we need to know whether we're putting like sugar or salt in our coffee. You know, the labels can be useful right. to define a thing. Um, but nobody, th- thinks or says the word alcoholic and uh, thinks something good or even neutral. (laughs) It's like it is a very to me, to me, not to everybody, but it's a very punitive term. And in that one word, there says so much about there's all these assumptions that go into it because of how we have portrayed alcoholism and the addict. Right. Right. Um, so I just, I, I, first of all, just don't choose to call myself that because it just doesn't feel good. Right. Uh, and it doesn't feel expansive either. Like I don't, I have no illusion about my problem with alcohol. I know I can't drink. I will never drink again. Uh, but so it's not born of that place, which I think is where a lot of the fear comes in. Right. It's like, if you don't call yourself that then you're not accepting it. It's like, nah, <laughs> I fully accept it. Yeah. I just don't want to call myself that because it's it feels punitive to me. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's like it's too it, it perpetuates this myth that there are people who can drink and people who can't. Right. And that there's a very black and white. There's a there's a line. It's very clear. And it's a black and white world. And it's not right <laughs> at all. Like part of this is just this weird, weird. Baffling um, culture we have around alcohol, which is a whole other conversation I could get into. Sure, but yeah. it's so, it's just so odd to me um, that the way that we feel about alcohol and protect it and covet it and way it's just sort of this ubiqu- ubiquitous drug because right. it is a drug. Oh yeah, I read this. I read this um, article. Over the weekend, that was citing a new uh, a new report that came out from. I, mean, I want to get this right. Sure. Um, a new report that came out from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. It's like the NIAAA. Yeah. I knew that I was going to get that wrong <laughs> if I tried to remember. And it just came out, and it said basically that we are in like this national health crisis that yeah. deaths among women particularly rose 85% alcohol related deaths rose 85% right. over the course of 2009 to 2017 so it's like this massive massive issue and yet we just don't see it as as a drug right and in the this article it said you know if alcohol came out today as a new drug it would be banned
3: oh sure no,
2: no questions asked yeah. it's the most dangerous drug it causes more deaths than all the other drugs combined, on and on and on. Anyway, so part of it is that it's like, um, it's not really that some, it's not, okay, I do believe in alcoholism. I do believe that some people, like, I have a thing that some of my friends just don't. It's obvious if you <laughs> want, even the people who drink heavily, I just simply couldn't stop Yes, and some people could take it or leave it, right? Right. But that's not to say that like there's a wide spectrum, a long spectrum of problematic drinking, and so this idea that if you're an alcoholic, th- that's the only, this the only time that you, the only label, if you wear that label, you cannot drink. Um, it just perpetuates this whole story that I don't that I don't agree with, right. and that I don't really want to support. So there's that, and then it, um it's also just like, I don't really care. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Like, I just don't care. Like that is not how I want to identify myself. It's not a, it's not the most important thing about me. It's not even like the top 50 most important things about me. So I just don't care. It's, it's a weird thing for me to, it just always felt weird coming out of my mouth. Um, so there's that, and I think like then there, the whole other thing is, and I say this a lot in book is like addiction is not that unique at right. all. Like mm-hmm. human human condition is that we are addicted. Oh yeah. We we have our tendencies. I mean, addiction is defined as anything you do despite negative consequences. Right. <laughs> so like. Begin the list of that those things, you know, yes. it's just that alcohol and a drug addiction happens to manifest in particularly ugly ways, right. so we have like vilified it more, but we're all addicted, of all of us, and so it's this very human condition uh, that the label, that label just seems so odd.
1: Yeah, you know, Eckhart Tolle in one of his books nailed it. He he was saying, you know, you think you're not addicted, and, and he's not an addiction, you know, specialist or writer, but right. he talked about that. He says, stop thinking, you know, like just go ahead yeah. and stop thinking and don't think right. anymore.
2: Your thoughts. Yeah, right.
1: good luck, you know, like, um, and the fact that these incessant thoughts that we have are for most of us, and even myself, still like 20 years into this healing journey, like I can still go down that spiral of like buying into or feeding into the negative thoughts that pop up and um, you know, get addicted and hence negative consequences. Not yep. like that with alcohol where I'll end up in a jail cell or an emergency room or intubated or, you know, any of the number of near death experiences I had, but right. still negative consequences on the inside, which then affect my way of being in the world and it's no bueno, you know, not good. So right. um the other thing you said too that um I I, I thought was interesting is that Um, it is such a protected kind of coveted thing, this, uh, drinking and especially, well, I was going to say in the, in the West, but I think pretty much everywhere. I I remember going to Rome, but it's not like, um, uh, a party alcohol thing. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. It's, it's different. Right. So. You know, I mean, I'm engaged, and I've been with my fiance for two years, and mm-hmm. um, she drinks like she'll have a beer like maybe a few times a year, and that doesn't bother me. Like, um, I know in the big book, uh, and I haven't attended a meeting in, in a long time myself. Nothing against yeah. them, but you know, there's still a lot of wisdom in that book, and I appreciate that book. Yeah. Um, yeah, But you know, they they talk about how we can't expect the change, the world to change just because we do, and um you know so i'm around alcohol a lot and that's fine cuz i write for magazines and aside from books and i you know write for music magazines and cover concerts and it's just there and yep. luckily i don't feel like called towards it and it's i have friends that drink and they're not alcoholic and they can great but my right. fiance the interesting thing was being with someone such as myself who is sober she had never like seen just how like Everywhere it is immersed. Yes. Like culture yeah. is like based on it. And, oh, and yeah, to the point where she like barely ever drinks now, just because yeah. she's so disgusted by it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, and people don't really, yeah, it
2: does that. open your eyes. Uh, people that even do, you know, cause now there's dry January, which we're in the middle of there's like dry right. July. There's right. sober October. There's, you know, one year, no beer people who have done those, Yeah. experiments have commented to me so many times about how they can't believe it's like oh now that I'm not doing it I see it's everywhere
1: right right so you know I I, one thing and and you did start out uh at or you know at one point with Alcoholics Anonymous and I know that um at least per your book you were still using the 12 steps as guideposts um Mm -hmm. you still have a sponsor Mm -hmm. um and I want to make it clear that, um, th- at least, you know, on my end, and I, I don't think on your end in any way, are we bashing the 12 Steps? Oh, um, God, no. Yeah, because, I mean, they have helped me. And, you know, I, I've already quoted, you know, the big book a number of times. And I know people who swear by that, and it saved their lives. And that's wonderful to each their own. Um, so I wanted to offer you an opportunity just to talk a little bit about the role that AA did play in your own journey. and um, you know, how that kind of, um, morphed, I guess, the longer you were there.
2: Yeah. So what I say in the book is like any criticism that I have to say about AA, which is really a criticism about the fellowship, not the program of AA, which is the 12 steps is pales in comparison to the reverence I have for that program, because it truly saved my life. The people there saved my life. I don't know that I would be sober without them. Right. That said, um, you know, I I initially my criticisms of AA were that I were, were really based on the fact that I didn't want to get sober. Sure, of course. <laughs> so there was that. Yeah. But then once I spent a lot of time in meetings and um, you know, a lot, I went every day for for several years and mm-hmm. There was so much good there, but there was also stuff that I just didn't agree with. Like, mm-hmm. and I didn't. There can be this very fear-based mentality in the rooms, and I'm not saying that this is every meeting. It's not how the program works, right? As it's laid out, not how the text works, but it's the fellowship, um, the people. There can be this very fear-based mentality that I just didn't like, it was like, I can't, I, I can't feel, you know, you hear some people say like, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic, Yeah. I I just have today, God forbid I get away from the program, I'll drink, and you know, they've been saying that for 20 years, and it's like, right. God, I can't imagine that that's, I can't fathom, it was depressing to me, yeah. That that felt really depressing. And then there, this idea of it it is that part, the when I talked about, you know, really over identifying with alcoholism and being an alcoholic, yeah, that was another aspect. So, this over identification, or how I see it as over identification, like, I just. It started to feel like very constricting to me and not expansive. And you know, I don't. My, I also have to say, like my work now. I I quit my job. I worked in advertising. I quit it in 2016 and started doing what I'm doing now, which is a lot of work in recovery. I teach personal development courses. I talk about sobriety all the time. I did a podcast about sobriety for years. I write about it all the time. I just wrote a book about it. So I'm very like connected to that world every day. Right. And I think if I didn't have that connection, I would have maybe stayed, I would have kept going to meetings if that was my only way to connect with other sober people and to be connected with recovery. Right. But I had so much of that that, the meetings just felt like this isn't doing anything for me anymore. And, um, and I also stopped working in the city and the, so the meetings were different, you know, where I go in my town, the meetings are just different, which is also a thing that just is the way it is because the program is whatever location you're in and the people who are there, Of course, right. right. That's the experience you're going to have. And it, it varies widely. So it's hard because I, I love the program. I love I I met so many wonderful people there. I'm forever indebted to it, but I also um it just wasn't it it felt very it just wasn't what, where I where I needed to be. Sure. And um and I still I still have a sponsor. I still do, I love the steps. I probably will start I I go to meetings occasionally and I and I would love to get involved again at some point. I bet I will, but it's just mm-hmm what I want people to know is that it's okay if you're, it's okay if your relationship is complicated with anything, right? Right. right. Um, and, and I also want to say I needed like what I, what I was doing in the beginning was saying, uh, AA is so dumb. I don't want to do it. I found all the flaws because I didn't really want to get sober. And I, then I sort of said to myself, like, you know what, (laughs) how about you get sober and stay sober for like a year or two and then you can start, you know, criticizing things. Right. Let's see if you can do that because that's, what's most important. And I'm telling you, I don't know that I would have got to a year or two years if I hadn't, didn't have all the meetings and the people and all that.
3: Yeah.
1: So. And, and, and same here. And that's why, like I never bad mouthed whatsoever. Um, as with like a lot of religions, um, I think you said, uh, or I saw a note somewhere where you said, um, it's run by people uh and people have a great way of ruining things you know and,
2: uh, <laughs> they do yeah
1: and you know what i don't know if you're aware of this or not but you know back in the 40s and i've seen the pamphlets with my own eyes um and if you do en- enough digging on google you can find them too but bill had put out uh you know back then there was a lot more pamphlets than anything and Uh, In some of them, he talked about the benefits of hallucinogenics for some people Mm. in recovery, Mm -hmm. as well as Buddhism and uh, various Buddhist teachings and practices, something you will not find or hear in most meetings today. And God forbid you mention the idea of some kind of alternate idea to healing um, that, you know, could alter the brain slightly um you know it's right. it's very scandalous uh it
2: is very scandalous yes, to some but,
1: um it's you know i just found it interesting that bill the creator was you know a proponent for that not for everyone just like gabor mate I you know i'm sure you're familiar mm, with his work love him yeah. yeah um and i've had him on the show and you know he's a big proponent for ayahuasca says it's not for everyone but uh, he has seen it work miracles in people's yep. lives. And yep. um, so, you know, that's that's another thing where there is a lot of, um, you know, stigma and, and not just AA, uh, any of the other fellowships where, you know, like, no, no, you can't. It alters your mind and without actually researching or understanding that it doesn't have the same effect on the pleasure center or the reward center in our brains. And, um,
2: you yeah, know, it's not just th- that everybody's so different. You know, everybody's different. Like,
1: yes. Yeah. So
2: I I appreciate you saying
1: that because, you know, the the other thing I was going to say is that the one thing and and Gabor pointed this out in our conversation and he's so, so correct is that the one thing he finds that's significantly lacking in the 12 steps is um, looking at trauma. Yeah, Yeah. the body and trauma. And so I'm sure you're familiar with Bessel van der Kolk's work, Uh Stephen uh, Levine and, you know, all these wonderful people. Peter Levine. Or Peter. uh, Who Who am I missing? (laughs) Stephen was a a wonderful teacher who passed away years ago, friends with Ram Dass, Peter Levine. Um, Peter Levine, yes. um, But, you know, that kind of that whole group. And I love their work. And that's. Oh, my
2: gosh. Me too.
1: Right. Life changing. And that's what got me into EMDR therapy, which I do now. and um, nothing again against 12 steps, but I'll tell you 20 years at this and EMDR and ART, which was born out of that have been game changers for me.
3: Um,
2: I, I agree. And, and the, the, uh, that's another, you know, it's not a criticism of AA. It's not supposed to be everything, but it's, it's more of just something I didn't find there. So I went elsewhere to get it as, is the body and sort of dealing with, with trauma specifically how to address trauma
1: right absolutely yeah. um and you know so I, I don't know if you had started with meetings uh, did you end up ever having to go i don't recall from your book if you had to go into a detox or residential or you just did straight up meetings and i
2: should have oh okay, god but- no i didn't and yeah. i didn't know how bad it could be sure I had no idea. Yeah. One, one, I was in denial about how much I was actually drinking. Right. Which was a lot. Right. Um, And two, I just didn't know how bad detoxing could be. I thought, oh. <laughs> I really didn't know. Yeah. And I, I, I'm I, glad you brought this up. If in case there's people, I don't think most people know. Yeah. I think you think, oh, you're going to feel like you're hungover for a couple days. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like The worst symptoms kick in 36 to 72 hours and you can die. Absolutely. Um, It can be fatal pretty easily. I detoxed. I, yeah, I had no idea. I just was up awake for several days. I was hallucinating. I was completely out of my mind and truly like a horrific experience. Um, But no, I didn't. And I should have. I really
1: should have. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, and I'm glad that. Thank you for sharing candidly because people aren't aware. Um, you know, they think of like coming off heroin and and you know, like feeling like you're dying. And um, but the only things you actually can die due to withdrawal symptoms are alcohol and benzodiazepines. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah, medical attention. Um, you know, depending on the degree to which you have uh, gone with see, your right. alcoholism. Yes, it's very scary. Uh, I've <laughs> been through withdrawal a number of times and I uh, wouldn't wish that upon anyone. Um, no. It's brutal. But what I can say is I've also been through a number of residential programs aside from psychiatric hospitals and jails and all, you know, I've lived the life. and You uh, did it all. I, I sure did. Um, Checked all the boxes. Absolutely. But It's literally a miracle and nothing special about me, but, um, a miracle I'm here and I'm grateful. Just like you were saying, you're connected with the community and doing the work you do and very similar Mm -hmm. here. And I'm so inspired that I get to every week go down to a youth, uh, mental health and healing residential facility. So I'm working with, um, teens 13 to 18, um, every week and two Sundays a month and they, you know it's tough to to be a teenager. I I didn't go into my first program till I was 24, but being a teen that age um, in a residential program where it's not just alcohol and, and um, drugs, but also suicidal ideations, attempts, uh, self harm, yeah, eating disorders. Yeah. Um, but the beautiful thing about this program that I never had access to in the ones I went to, because it was just don't drink, uh, get a sponsor, go to meetings. Like that was mm-hmm. the answer. But I then, know as you said, we're all unique individuals. And that's what I love about this program. And I'm seeing more of it throughout the country is they are taking that individual uh, into mind. And so this program uh, offers yoga, offers meditation, yeah. equine, therapy. More holistic, like integrative. Exactly. Yeah. And I would, I just wish, you know, or am happy to see that that's happening, but really that's what's needed. I believe in, uh, in the program. So um, anyways, moving on from that aspect of things, yeah. um, earlier you talked about, uh, guilt and I know guilt and shame are not the same thing. They're, you know, mm-hmm. definitely different, but mm-hmm. this is something and you have a chapter, Magnificent Monsters, and I know it's something you have a difficult time, um, answering, um, per, per what I read, some info that Kim had sent over prior to me reading the book, <laughs> but then I read the chapter and I understand why. But I think shame, you know, it's such an important topic and not yeah. just for people in recovery, just human beings. Totally. Um So, you know, with your experience of that, particular, you know, you mentioned earlier being a mom and mm-hmm. everything you've had to go through. um I'm sorry to hit you with a heavy one, but this is such a... Oh, no, it's so fine. Important. It's so, totally fine. Cool. Yeah. So if you could talk a little bit about working with that and your experience and ultimately like how you've how you've come to, uh, I don't know, overcome it, if that's the right word, or, or at least yeah. like, you know, whatever.
2: Work through it. Yeah, Yeah. Work through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... The... <sighs> Anyone who has, there's this word and there's phrase in the big book, it's incomprehensible demoralization. Right. And that is such an accurate description of what it feels like when you have suffered in addiction and, and have the things that you do and the things that you say, and there's so much shame around it. One, for just the fact that you can't seem to stop. Cause it seems like you just should be able to, and the world tells you should, you should be able to, but too, just, we do dumb stuff, you right. know, we do stuff that is really out of alignment with who we are. Uh, so being a mom, you know, I say there's like a special vitriol for moms who drink because it just flies in the face of everything that we're supposed to be. Right. And, and this, this instinct that we're supposed to have with our kids. And I get that. Like I get, that it flies in the face of it. it really does. It didn't make sense to me either. So I, I was so smothered and by and in shame when I, in my, you know, the last years of my drinking really yeah. way before that I was an I was an ashamed person, sure. <laughs> generally ashamed. I mean, shame is like thinking something is wrong with you. Right. 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 Um, whereas guilt is like, you you think, you feel like you've done something wrong. Yeah, Shame is like, something is wrong with right. me. And I don't remember a time when I didn't feel that way, you know, as a kid. And then, you, and then what I say in the book is like, I felt ashamed anyway. And then I, and then I created reasons to be ashamed. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess the way that I worked through it there are a few things. One was hearing other people talk about their stories. And there is such this there's so much freedom in that and so much like I remember the first few meetings just feeling like someone had unlocked like like I had been had a rubber band around me for mm. years and someone finally like cut it and I could breathe because people were saying things that I thought only I thought said felt did right? I thought that was, it was just me. And of course it wasn't. And so I learned by listening to other people who had worked through their shame and weren't ashamed. I couldn't believe it. Right, <laughs> They would just tell their stories, you know, and it was like, no big deal. It's like, right. oh my God, how'd you do that? <laughs> so, but it's because they had gone through it themselves. And then, so that helped immensely. And then I started to put together and talk about and um, straighten out my own story and say the things that I had never told anybody. Right. And, um, I, in that I saw that I had, I knew I had, like when it came to my daughter, it's like, I love, I know I love her fiercely. right? And yet I am doing these things like that put her in such danger. Yeah, it doesn't make sense and someone said to me a woman said to me addiction is stronger than love until it isn't Mm. and it was like oh that's it because because it it just had to be because there was no way I would choose to do that to her you know like this thing had me um so that was a big piece and then just really realizing that all of us have all the capacity for all the light and all of the dark. All of us. That that's how we are. That's how humans are. And I would easily give that grace and compassion and understanding to other people, but I wouldn't give it to myself.
3: Of course. <laughs>
2: you know, and so oh, yeah. I I realized like I cannot beat myself into submission. I can't hate myself into changing I can't right. so I'm gonna have to love these all the parts of me right and I and over time over time a lot of writing, a lot of work a lot of just remembering really because once I stopped drinking, Like it would have never been possible had I not stopped drinking because I just kept creating new destruction and new reasons to be ashamed. But I learned, you know, my book opens with this list of nine things and I learned that it really wasn't my fault. Right. Um, I learned that it is my, all of it was my responsibility, all of it, everything, but none of it was my fault. Like, or at least like getting addicted was not my fault. I never chose that. I didn't chose the reasons why I drank to begin with, which were things I had no control over, yeah. you know, yeah. at some point I said yes to drinking, of course, obviously, but I never chose to get addicted. And I, and so it was almost like taking responsibility for what was mine and not taking responsibility for what wasn't mine right anymore. It-
1: and just to to clarify it, because um, I did want to share those nine things, if that's cool with you, with listeners, Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful way of um, conveying this, you know, things that I've certainly learned myself through years of, of a lot of work. But I love the way you just simplify it and, and keep it, yeah, keep it simple. Let's throw another cliche yeah. out there while we're at it. <laughs> but know. so, you know, you write... Um, what I just and I love that this is how you start the book, it's right in the beginning. Number one, it's not your fault. Number two, it is your responsibility. Number three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Number four, this is your thing. Number five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Number six, you can't do it alone. That's so huge. Number seven, only you can do it. Number eight, I love you. Number nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, th- ugh, speechless, you know, like that is so beautiful. So like I said, I know I just kind of interjected, but that was something yeah. I was hoping yeah. you could talk and continue to elaborate a little bit more um, yeah. on that.
2: Yeah, so I actually created that list of nine things. It was, a, I got a letter years ago from a woman who was really struggling because her sister was having a lot of problems with her drinking. Yeah, And she was struggling and she didn't know how to talk to her sister and she was worried and she was angry and she was in you know, her own hell, the hell that is watching someone you love be in the throes of addiction. Right. And she said, what do I say to her? And I wrote her this long letter, but at the end I wrote those things. And to me it's just like everything I needed to hear just yeah. summarized you know, what I wanted people to say to me, what I needed to say to me. Yeah. Um and it yeah. So and it's just like no matter what it is, no matter what your thing is, it's not just for people in addiction, but no matter what you're going through when you're up against that type of pain, or as I call it like your thing. Right. <laughs> then that's what that's what I want people to hear.
1: And like I said, I love it as it's so just succinct and simple. It reminds me, uh, I've shared about this, um, but I'll reshare it briefly because I think it's fully in context. Um, There was a wonderful Trappist monk named Father Thomas Keating who uh, passed away a few years ago and um, I adored his work. He was uh, from the mystic Christian lineage and I remember this was probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little more. I was interviewing him and I don't remember how it came up in the conversation, but Um, it was when I was still identifying as being in recovery and, uh, and I, I had mentioned that and he, you know, he kind of chuckled, um, not like in a, you know, a mean way, but it was kind of a lighthearted way. And, and, um, he said, well, I'm in recovery too. And I remember thinking to myself, oh shit, I didn't know father Keating had a habit. Like that's crazy. But his response was, uh, I'm in recovery from the human condition and the varying <laughs> degrees to which we all suffer and struggle, oh, you know? And I was like, so yes, thank and, you. Yeah, and that's it. It was like a light went off and that for me was so big because I, it helped me realize I did have such blinders on that. Like, you know, I'm in recovery from, you know, alcohol was my thing, but of course, what else, you know, alcohol and, mm-hmm. or if nothing else is available, sure. Alcohol, but you know, All the meaningless sex and the overspending and uh, just you know all of these terrible things that came along with it. Yeah. When he put it like that, I was like, yeah. So I love that when you say your thing, I do the same. You know, use different words, but it's like you know just replace the words drugs and alcohol or alcohol whatever with and you know with whatever your your thing is and shine a light on that. And I love that you do that because. We're all human and we all have our thing or things, plural, no doubt about it. And that's why this book is so important is that it might have the context of, uh, you know, the the sobriety story, but it's not just for people that struggle with, you know, drinking or drugs. It's, I think, a universally beneficial read for literally anybody. If you're a human being then this book is for you. Um that's <laughs> I'm my two. So senses. glad
2: you said that. I I that's my hope.
1: Yeah. Because you know, and I say that because you're again, that's the underlying thread. But for example, like a big part of this book, um, there's so many great takeaways, but one of them is you talk about your bigger yes, you know, which I know is a big part of your teaching. And I really, really dig that. Um the way that you you kind of flip the way we typically look at things in life and um you challenge us to reframe the way that we're viewing them or questioning them so this um bigger yes um i you know i you had talked about it in a way of like stopping behavior in terms of what we we're giving up um but that there's something bigger you know and we're moving towards that on the other side um, yeah always that's the, the bigger yes so yeah can you talk more about that um How, how, how to reframe that and the bigger yes.
2: Yeah. So the bigger yes, um, came from, well, first of all, it came from the actual phrase itself came from this Stephen Covey quote, uh, that says you have to decide what your highest priorities are. And, um, and the with, sorry, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, non apologetically to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. So you have to decide what your highest priorities are, right? Right.
3: Um,
2: Augustine Burroughs, who I adore, oh, yeah, also wrote this magnificent essay in his book, This Is How. And in it, he says wonderful things. There's this one um, chapter essay called How to Put Down Your Drink, and it talks about how to get sober. And he says what worked for me in getting sober was to find something I loved more than I loved drinking.
3: Yes.
2: And P.S., I didn't think that was that there was anything. (laughs) And I didn't either. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous to someone who doesn't get that, but I just. I didn't. I wanted to keep that and do the things I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to say no to that, right? right? So um so there were there was something though. I knew I knew I had this big potential inside of me. I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I I wanted so deeply and badly to be a writer. And when I started to try to get sober, I started writing because I, it helps me figure out what was going on with me. Um, it, I just couldn't stop. I, like just, I finally also had a story to tell. So I started to get glimpses of what it felt like to be in that space, mm. you know, to be doing this thing that I so deeply wanted to do. And that I, I think is my gift. My gift is to, to use words. <laughs> right. Um, And most importantly, it's just where I feel close. It's for me where I feel most closely connected to God um, and to God is in like my truest self. So I I had a sense of what that felt like. Right. And again, it took me like a year and some months where I was sober a little and then I wasn't sober and then I wasn't. So I got to in that time to get this glimpse of what it felt like to be sober and to start to write and to put like, I tested these waters and I went there, were, there are were a few stories I could tell, but I went to this reading once it was Elizabeth Gilbert actually. And, um, it was in Boston and I, it was like July of 2014. So I wasn't sober yet. I got sober finally in September. I remember being pretty hungover. I brought my daughter, I dragged my daughter along. It's like 95 degrees that day. and oh. sat in the front of the theater. I remember just barely being able to look at her at Liz do this thing. You know, she was giving a reading answer, question answering questions because I wanted I wanted it so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like I wanted to be doing what she was doing and I wanted it so bad that it hurt. Yeah. And someone asked her a question like about writer's block or something, some sort of regular, you know, question that she probably gets asked all the time. And she's like, oh, I don't really believe in writer's block. But you know, there's all kinds of things that could stand in the way of you doing this thing that you want to do. It could be a relationship, it could be your health, it could be your geography, it could be alcoholism, it could be this, it could be that. She just like threw it in. Right. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, for whatever reason, I saw so clearly that I could, like, I would never do it if I kept drinking, I would never, it was one or the other. Yeah. Uh, that I could, I had the sense that I had this in me, like, I, I could write, I could maybe even publish a book, I could maybe even change my entire life to be a teacher. Right. But, it, but none of it was gonna be possible if I kept drinking. Yeah. And so it was that saying no, to other things by having this bigger yes inside and then there's this quote that I always bring up as many times as I can because it's the most powerful quote to me and it, it it's the gospel of thomas yeah and he says if you bring forth what is within you what you bring forth will save you and if you do not bring forth what is within you what you do not bring forth will destroy you so it's like this unused potential in us is not a benign thing. Right. What what grows in its place is this darkness, and bitterness, and depression. And we know it when we feel it, and we de- we know it when we see it too in other people, right? Yeah,
3: absolutely.
2: And that that's what had been happening to me. I mean, that the addiction was killing me. The alcohol was killing me for sure. But this not using my potential that I, and knowing I wasn't that I was wasting my life. Yeah. Um was really killing me.
1: I I love I'm so happy you mentioned the Gospel of Thomas. That's my favorite of all the gospels. Um, you know, I love the Gnostics, but uh that one is just I've read so many different versions and translations and uh that the entire gospel to me is is wonderful. So esoterically uh close to Buddhism in many of the sayings. Uh yes. But, yes. Uh, I love that that is uh, something you just brought up and especially that part because yes, so true and so true. Yeah. And, and, and same, you know, one of my favorite sayings uh, that I use all the time is the only way out is through very simply, you know, like mm-hmm. until we bring that unconscious material that young talked about until we begin to reown and reintegrate that through, Whatever means and methods there are, that's the stuff that's like still there. And that for me was a big part of what kept bringing me back to relapsing and acting out and self-harm and suicide attempts. And that's why I said earlier, the just I can't stress enough for me, at least the importance of the trauma based therapy that uh, I am still involved in and, and how it shifted so much of my life, Um, even prior to. uh or I'm sorry, post writing. You know, I've been doing the work for a long time, but um, you know, similar to you, it's very interesting that I started writing, but not with the intention of becoming an author or a public speaker. That that happened ass backwards for me, and it was <laughs> a, a New York Times bestseller that read some of my stuff on a website that introduced me to my literary agent, and I saw like before our call the people she represents, and I got really nervous because. You know, I didn't go to school for writing. I didn't plan on writing. And then, you know, now I have three books out and two of them with Simon and Schuster. And it's- That's it's, amazing. Yeah. But the, the the coolest part to me is that, and I write for these magazines and I do the workshops with the, the teens and they see like the endorsements I've gotten and they know the magazines I write for and they're like, that's so cool, blah, blah, blah. And I'm glad they see that because it shows what's capable. Like you said, once we stop- whatever the self-defeating behaviors are that we're doing. Right. but But the coolest thing, and I'm always very clear with them or with anyone I'm talking to is that, yes, that's cool on the material physical level. But the nicest thing is that I woke up this morning and I was not hungover, Ugh. I was not going through withdrawals. I was not running to the toilet to throw up. I was not shaking. I was not reaching for like, Hoping that there's a little bit left in my bottle bot- you know uh, bottle just to get me through till the package store opens, like oh my God, that's yeah. the gift for me, the biggest gift
2: absolutely and, yes, and the like, it's so basic and so simple, and it never gets old
1: no, and without it, what you're doing what I'm doing it you're right, it wouldn't be possible, and yet here we are, just two examples um you know there's countless examples of tragic losses well before their time due to drugs and alcohol and other things of that nature. But mm-hmm. here we are, nothing special about either one of us, except that we did the work, you know? I mean, we're all special in our own way, but we showed up and we did the work and, you know, and, and we followed uh, whatever life put in front of us. And now here we are doing that and, and giving back. And, um, and so, you know, all that to say, uh, so much respect to you and you. what you do in this book, um, which You know, for for the audience again, the titles. We are the luckiest. The surprising magic of a sober life. Um, We talked. I mean, we really scratched the surface. I, I I know we sidetracked a bit, but it's. I always enjoy doing that with uh, with my guests because. Being interviewed yeah. a lot myself, I know it can get kind of tedious when you're asked the same questions over yeah, and over. But, yeah. Um, what I did want to end on, and then I'll give you, of course, a moment if there's anything we didn't cover, was just very quickly, I wanted to read um, from the inside jacket the um, kind of about the book. Um, so, in case, you know, anyone or anything we didn't cover or is unclear, sure. this I think does a very nice, succinct job. Um, it writes, What could possibly be lucky about addiction? Absolutely nothing, thought Laura McGowan when drinking brought her to her knees. As she puts it, she kicked and screamed, wishing for something, anything else, to be her issue. The people who got to drink normally, she thought, were so damn lucky. But in the midst of early sobriety, when no longer able to anesthetize her pain and anxiety, she realized that she was actually the lucky one lucky to feel her feelings, live honestly, really be with her daughter change her legacy she recognized that those of us who answer the invitation to wake up whatever our invitation are really the luckiest of all here in straight talking chapters filled with personal stories McCowan addresses issues such as facing facts the questions of aa and other people's drinking without sugarcoating the struggles of sobriety she relentlessly emphasizes the many blessings of an honest life one without secrets and debilitating shame. And I think that's a really, really lovely about the book. Um, whomever you have at New World Library, that wrote that. They did a great job. <laughs> Thank of, them. Yeah, they did a really nice job. But that said, um, I always like to leave my guests with the last words. So uh, Laura, if there's anything that we didn't cover that you specifically wanted to make sure um, you left listeners with, the floor is all yours.
2: Oh my gosh. Um, I think, you know, what, I, what I want people to hear most is that their pain is pain is not such a problem. Like mm-hmm. it's, Oh, it's always an invitation to something. And when you're in the middle of pain, that can be the most annoying thing in the world to hear. Yeah. But it's also just so true. And, Um, I just I want people to hear that like I want them to know that they're they they have this invitation to a much bigger more meaningful life
1: Mm. I love that and I think that that could not be a I think more apropos way of bringing this conversation to a close um, for now because I feel like we have to definitely have you back on the show there is so much more um I want to talk to you about and these are the times where I'm like ah oh, why do I have to be limited to an hour but I get <laughs> no. it I understand it. and we have things we have to do but uh Laura I really like I said I deeply appreciate you the book thank the you the work you're doing in the world it's so needed and uh and yeah just much respect to you for that and thank you for the time and being on the podcast
2: thank you thank you for having me